Hello, this is the UCLA Housing Voice Podcast, and I'm your host, Shane Phillips. This week's guest is Meredith Greif of Johns Hopkins University, and she's joining us to talk about her research and new book, Collateral Damages, Landlords, and the Urban Housing Crisis. We've been on a bit of a landlord kick over the past few months, and you'll definitely hear some echoes of previous conversations in this episode. Professor Greif's research looks at the experiences of nearly 60 small and medium-sized landlords in Cleveland, Ohio, and specifically at the ways nuisance and utility regulations, which levy penalties on landlords, may ultimately fall most heavily on tenants, especially those who are already marginalized due to their race, family or employment status, or experiences with domestic violence. This is by no means a call to eliminate regulations, but Greif's work does encourage us to consider the unintended consequences that may accompany those regulations and to design or redesign them accordingly. I want to give a bit of a longer introduction here for this episode because I know there can be a temptation to interpret any amount of sympathy toward landlords as a form of apologia, and I want to acknowledge that here at the top and make it clear that our purpose is not to cast landlords as victims, especially when juxtaposed against tenants. Among the many reasons I don't think that's the appropriate way to interpret this research, landlording is a business, and it is therefore something that people opt into. And as real and legitimate as the concerns raised in this conversation may be, there's no question that even the landlords discussed here are in positions of exceptional privilege relative to most, if not all, of their tenants, especially those who face overlapping vulnerabilities and marginalization due to their race or ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, gender identity, or otherwise. The landlords in this study also, in some cases, openly admit to breaking the law based on little more than folk tales shared amongst their peers. At the same time, Professor Greif's work helps illustrate how we can unintentionally exacerbate these inequalities if our gut reaction to any kind of landlord complaint is to dismiss them out of hand, or if we assume that if something is bad for landlords, then it must be good for tenants. Her research points to some cases where what's bad for one is bad for the other, and that to me seems like something worth knowing, even if it still leaves us the difficult work of figuring out how best to respond to that. Just for a quick example here, Professor Greif mentions in our discussion how some landlords say they don't rent to tenants with children under six years old because they'd be subject to lead remediation requirements that they feel they can't afford. We could respond to that by saying, well, too bad. This is important and everyone's required to do it even if they're not renting to households with children. If you're not willing to spend the money on lead remediation, then you shouldn't be in the landlording business. That's pretty much my view if we take unintended consequences off the table. But Cleveland is a poor city where housing is already worth very little. What if the result of that mandate is for some rentals to go vacant and others to be converted to owner occupancy so that yes, the rental units still available are now lead free, but there are fewer of them and they're more expensive because there's less supply and the same demand. Are renters in Cleveland better off? Households with kids under six probably are, assuming they can still afford the slightly more expensive housing. But there was a clear cost there in losing some of those units and the price of the remaining ones going up, and it wasn't borne just by the landlords. Again, this does not mean that the response is to throw up our hands and do nothing and say, well, we just aren't going to do lead remediation. But whatever our response, it has to take those trade-offs into account and maybe in the process, we can come up with a solution that actually works better for more tenants, whether it's something landlords support or not. That's really what we're getting at with this discussion, and I think it's an interpretation Professor Greif would also agree with. So I hope everyone is able to listen to this episode charitably and with an open mind, even if it makes you a bit queasy, which I think is also an appropriate response to much of this, to be clear. The Housing Voice podcast is a production of the UCLA Lewis Center for Regional Policy Studies with production support from Claudia Bustamante, Olivia Arena, and Jason Suteja. As always, feedback and show ideas can go to me at shanephillips at ucla.edu. Now let's get to our conversation with Professor Meredith Greif. 
Meredith Greif is Assistant Professor of Sociology at Johns Hopkins University, and she is the author of a new book titled Collateral Damages, Landlords and the Urban Housing Crisis, published by the Russell Sage Foundation. She's joining us today to talk about that book and some of the research that motivated it. Professor Greif, welcome to the Housing Voice podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And my co-host today is Mike Lenz on campus at UCLA. Welcome. On campus at UCLA, back to live in, in Los Angeles. Um, somebody should do something about the traffic here. <laughs> you know anybody? Okay. So as always, we start with a tour from our guest. I assume you want to do Baltimore, but up to you. When you have friends or colleagues visiting the city, uh, where do you like to take them? I take them to Patterson Park, which is a huge and beautiful green space. And it's one of the oldest and most historic parks in Baltimore. And it has this iconic feature of a famed pagoda with a three-story observation at the top of a hill. And it's one of the best views of the city. It also has a duck pond. And I'm an avid bird lover, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm a sucker for that. That sounds lovely. So before we get into the study, I had a more macro level observation based in part on our previous guests, which is that it seems like a lot of the best research on landlords and eviction comes from sociologists. Matthew Desmond and his work in Milwaukee, our recent guests, Eva Rosen and Philip Garbodin, and of course yourself. Why do you think that is? Why, why sociology? First, thank you for observing that. <laughs> and I think... There are a few reasons why sociologists have provided such meaningful findings on these topics. It's the, the qualitative and ethnographic approach which I and these other sociologists have used to give us a chance to put together a picture by hearing people's stories and in a way that you wouldn't ordinarily get from using large-scale survey data alone or other forms of quantitative data and statistics. And when it comes to landlords in particular, who have been a stigmatized population, we've really missed out on their perspective. Right. There's not a lot of you know, data on, on so many fundamental things. And when I say data, I mean quantitative or administrative data or even large-scale survey data that you might you know, glean from the census. There's just not – there's all these urban housing phenomena, right, that – you hear anecdotes about that you hear accusations about whether it's from the landlord side levied at tenants whether it's from the tenant side and, and their advocacy community levied at landlords and we just don't have you know systematic information on that right and so it's it's so so valuable that we we have people like you and and other folks getting these stories finding some ways to have a, a evidence base on what we got, right? Yeah. So the article that we're discussing today was published several years ago in the journal City and Community. It's titled Regulating Landlords, Unintended Consequences for Poor Tenants. And as I said, your book, it, it builds upon this research. Your research is similar to Eva's and Philip's in that it was based on a bunch of interviews with small and medium-sized landlords. In your case, these were all in Cleveland. And also similarly, you talk to others involved in the housing market in one way or another, especially the lower end housing market. This could be eviction court judges and magistrates, people who inspect homes with uh, housing choice vouchers, council members, tenant advocates, and so forth. Both the article and your book are about how landlords respond to regulation and the unintended negative consequences or collateral damages that that can have for poor tenants. But at least for the article, this was not about regulation of all kinds necessarily, but rather a few regulations or policies in particular. The defining characteristic of these regulations to me seems to be their relationship to the problem of moral hazard, which to give a, a very oversimplified definition occurs in situations where a person, organization or other group or entity is protected from the consequences of their actions. Usually someone else has to pay the cost. I'm most familiar with the concept of moral hazard in the context of health insurance, where there's a concern that if, for example, the government covers people's medical expenses, they may be more likely to behave in ways that put their own health at risk through smoking or eating unhealthily or not exercising. 
and the, the idea there is that, you know, at least some of the cost of those actions is is borne by the public through the, the health insurance program rather than the individual themselves, putting aside the fact that being unhealthy is is its own cost that you pay. But in this case, we're talking about tenants who violate certain rules or norms and landlords who end up paying. What were the regulations that you were actually interested in for this study, and why do they raise concerns about unintended consequences? And as you answer, you can feel free to expand on my very inadequate definition of moral hazard as a part of your answer, if you think that would be helpful. Okay, sure. I realize the term moral hazard can sound jargony. You did capture it well. I'll just go on to remind that it's meant to describe a circumstance where someone stands to incur a loss often financially as a result of someone else's behavior, especially when that person doesn't seem to have anything to lose as a result. And so as you wondered, what are some of those policies that do create these moral hazard circumstances and why are they such a problem for tenants? So there are two in particular I focus on in this paper and continue to discuss it even more in my book, but they pertain to criminal activity nuisance ordinances and to water billing regulations. And although there's some differences between them, they do evoke some of the same feelings from landlords and subsequent treatment towards tenants on the basis of this moral hazard concept. So first, I'll talk about the Criminal Activity Nuisance Ordinances, or CANOs. And these are actually sweeping through cities across the nation. Mm. They are usually enforced locally and are meant to deter undesirable activity from private properties. So there's a, a growing list of nuisance behaviors on the books in many cities, and that includes loud noise, drug use, calling the police too many times for help, even if that means help with domestic violence issues. Yeah, which it seems really perverse. It does. And we can talk more about that. <laughs> <laughs> and according to these ordinances, it's the property owner who can incur hundreds or thousands of dollars in fines or even criminal sanctions as a result of nuisance activity on their property. So you can imagine how it is that landlords feel especially concerned about their tenants, quote, nuisance activity on their property mm -hmm. and might therefore turn to some disadvantageous practices in order to minimize that financial risk. So, for instance, when it comes to these canos, there were landlords who screened out people who had criminal convictions on their record. Notably, these are people who face obstacles to getting access to housing anyway. Some landlords explain that they were worried to house someone with a criminal conviction because of concerns about their own safety or the safety of their tenants if they had a multi-unit building. But this adds another layer of risk for the landlord because in their minds, they presumed that if someone had committed some illegal act previously, that there was a greater likelihood that they might do so on their property, inviting all of the financial sanctions or criminal sanctions that could occur um, in the future if they did house this person. So it's layering on this other additional type of risk for uh, people with this background. Another thing which is also very upsetting and shocking is that there were landlords who looked to screen out people who shared they were survivors of domestic violence because, again, of the idea that calling the police for assistance multiple times in particular for this or other issues can lead to a property being labeled a nuisance. And so when landlords heard that someone had experienced domestic violence, said that's a red flag, turning this person away. So already right then and there, you're seeing two uh, populations that face obstacles to housing that are additionally getting set back as a result of these uh, canos. But I'll also note that aside from screening, there are other ways that tenants suffered as a result, that their housing security suffered because there were landlords who were so hyper-scrutinizing of their tenants and especially tenants' illegal activity on the property, notably drug use, that when they received any kind of suggestion or had any suspicion that their tenants were engaged in such activity on their properties, found ways to harass them, to have them leave without having to go through the court process. So they didn't have tangible evidence that in theory could enable them to be victorious in a court eviction hearing, but that just the suspicion alone motivated them to try to 
raise red flags in the tenants' minds and scare them to get out and without mm-hmm. the court process. So that we would call that an informal eviction, which is also illegal. Right. And, you know, some of that, those issues with domestic violence in particular, you know, uh, Shane brought that up as, as a perverse incentive or perverse system, right? That, you know, we, we learned a lot about that from Desmond's book, Evicted, you know, back in 2016 or whatever. So it's, I think, important to emphasize for me that, like, every jurisdiction is going to be different. You know, policy-wise, whether this is on the policing side or the code enforcement side or the, you know, how badly we disincentivize a a victim of domestic violence coming forward. But we know that there are so many places out there where on top of the long, long and tragic list of reasons why somebody, why a victim might not be very comfortable coming forward, calling the police, trying to uh, get away from somebody that's harming them, you add the potential that a landlord can, you know, have you removed or has, you know, additional incentives to have you removed because the city, the police have labeled your unit, your your home, you know, a, a problem. <laughs> Rather than, you know, something, you know, and, and a housing problem to solve, not just like you have a right. problem of danger to your body and your, your well-being, right? And, and that's just so, so tragic and, and I, I think is, you know, a, a really important motivation for what you're doing. It's true catch-22 to select yeah. between your housing and your safety. Yeah. That's the position we're putting people in. Right. And and you also were looking. You mentioned uh, water regulations as well. Could you tell us a little bit about those? Water was one of the most shocking findings of this work. Something that yes uh, did not see coming, honestly. <laughs> and not yeah. just in like drought stricken California, right? It, we're in Cle- yeah, we're in yeah. Cleveland. We have our own. Water we're in Cleveland. Concerns. There's a very large body of fresh water nearby. I'll I'll stop. <laughs> yes, yeah, go on. <laughs> yes. It, 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 it came up very early on. Some landlords, it was the first thing they wanted to talk about. You could barely get past the first sentence without them saying, water bills are terrible for the landlord. Water is a monster. Water is a killer. And then they began to share why. And I'll just give brief background that water bills are rising nationwide for everybody. Mm-hmm. And Cleveland is not even the city where it's uh, rising the most. There are places where it's even rising much faster and the reason is because our water infrastructure is crumbling and it's really expensive to improve, to upgrade. And the federal government used to provide more money for that and is pulling away. Now cities are having to take over that responsibility and are jacking up costs for the consumer in order to fund that. Which you would imagine would be especially bad in a place like Cleveland where the population is what half what it was at its peak. And so it's got this much larger system probably than it even needs. And yet it has to keep maintaining all of that with the smaller economic. Yes, base. exactly. Right. It varies across contexts for, for reasons like that, that they, they still have to do all that work. And if there aren't enough mm-hmm. tax dollars, they'll just, they're just going to raise taxes more. And that has implications for everybody. And the reason why it has particular implications for landlords and their tenants is because according to these regulations, which are found also in cities nationwide, is that ultimately it's the property owner slash landlord who's responsible to pay that water bill. So even if the lease states that it's the tenant's responsibility, or even if the water bill is in the tenant's name, it does not matter legally. Ultimately, it's the landlord that's responsible. Hmm. And it's- I didn't know that. It's something that's- in some ways, perhaps is meant to protect the tenant and also to ensure the city gets their money. Uh, but it does have these uh, negative consequences for tenants first. Uh, and I can go on and talk about that. Or Well, I, I assumed that it was a just an issue of like water is very rarely separately metered for individual units. But I was not aware that it's just even if it were... Um, it's still the responsibility of the landlord. I mean, I guess I could see it like if the landlord doesn't maintain the pipes and there's a leak, like that's not the fault of the tenant and yet they might be billed for it. So I can see at least one reason you might have a rule like that. But yeah, tell us a little bit more about like how this affects landlords or like how this moral hazard problem comes in specifically. So 
it put them, especially the small landlords, on edge in terms of these rising and unpredictable water bills. And some even admitted that they would not be making money in the business if the tenants used more water or if they had some major water bill that for a lot of these landlords, their their bottom line was really tight, something that we need to give more attention to sure. as we talk about them. That they're not all making tons of money, and, and that's a part of this whole story that I'm talking about here. So when it comes to the water bills, first, landlords were motivated to screen out applicants who they assumed would use more water. And notably, these are some of the very populations that already face obstacles to gaining affordable, decent housing. So, for instance, they were very wary to house people who were unemployed, and not just for the reason that they figured those folks would have trouble paying rent consistently, but they literally said, well, this person will be home more hours of the day using more water. Right. That was that was really interesting to me. I hadn't thought about that it, before. I, I, I hadn't either. And it goes to show you this this calculus that these landlords are going into with about just trying to predict the renters every move before they put them in their property because uh, of a sense of lack of control that some of these landlords express, especially in regards to water, that based on some other regulations, which are important, like the landlord's not allowed to turn off the water at any time and... They aren't even allowed to go into the property to investigate tenants' water usage without a 24-hour notice. So these are protective laws for the tenants and are important, but just on the landlords. And it made them feel somewhat powerless, like, I have to pay this bill. I can't turn off the water. I can't control what's happening in there. So they scrutinize their, their tenants even more. Uh, relatedly, because of concerns about unemployed people using more water, they had an incentive to turn away voucher holders because of an erroneous assumption that voucher holders were unemployed, making them more, quote, risky because they might therefore use more water. Some other populations that also faced limited housing options included larger families, and notably families with kids. And that's a, correct me if I'm wrong, that, is that not considered a protected class? You're not legally allowed to discriminate based on that, but... Proving someone is doing so, other than, I guess, when they just right. tell you in an interview, is <laughs> pretty yes, difficult. Yes, that is one of our major issues here in trying to protect people uh, under these laws, is to prove that discrimination can be very challenging. And so, certainly so, some landlords expressed concern about larger families in general, just wear and tear and, and, and children perhaps wear and tear. But then the additional layer of water, they, in their minds, doing the math of more people, more water being used, so I'm going to turn them away. So one question I had, which I, I think is basically already answered, but I just want to put it out there, is, you know, if it's, if it's often tenants that are at fault here, they're using, you know, quote unquote, too much water, they're causing some nuisance. Uh, another one that we didn't mention, but uh, there are also penalties if like people don't put the lid on their trash can and, and these kind of waste related things as well. These are really all entirely or almost entirely out of the hands of landlords and yet they're paying fines and penalties for them. My question was going to be, you know, can't the landlord just put these provisions in the lease to say like, if you, the tenant incur this finer penalty, you are responsible for it. I think in the case of water, it sounds like there's just rules that basically say you can't do that. The, the landlord is ultimately responsible Obviously, with things like domestic violence, as I said, that would be a, a perverse rule to say, like, you're going to have to pay a fine because you called the police against your abuser. But there's a few examples. I, I mean, it seems like with the trash, at least, like, couldn't the landlord just put that provision that says if a fee is, is levied because you didn't put the trash can lid on or whatever or drag it to the right spot, then you're responsible for that? It's a good question. In theory, the landlord's would be permitted to do that. And I raised that question with them. But mm -hmm. over and over again, they said, I don't see getting that money. It doesn't seem at all plausible when you're looking at the lower end of the market where tenants really struggle to pay rent consistently. The landlord said, you know, I, I have trouble getting the rent a lot. So these tenants are not going to be able to give me that $100 or in some cases $500 fine for leaving the trash can out too long. It just right. wasn't plausible. And ultimately, the 
fine or penalty is going to the landlord and it would just be a question of can they get the money from the tenant not it's not going to shift the burden where now the city is reaching out directly to the tenant to try right, to get the money. exactly it goes straight to the landlord and the landlord has to pay it or else face additional consequences yeah did you ever encounter or or have you have you kind of contemplated how technology might be marshaled to to at least help in in some of these relationships right like you know we all get reminders and notifications from different people and like you know some we ignore at this point i'm sure for most of us there's too many of them to really fully uh <laughs> act upon all the time right but and then you know tenants aren't necessarily going to ten you know tenants in the circumstances that we're talking about are going to be the you know some of the least connected to some forms of technology whether it's email uh, but most everybody has a cell phone and there's you know text message you know capabilities or whatever for everybody so so like if a landlord had the ability to just like auto remind people to do trash things or or whatever like every week reminders do not necessarily like solve everything but is there any movement like in that direction? That's a good question. It didn't come up among the landlords with whom I spoke, but I could see that as being a step in the right direction, that presuming the emails or texts are polite and respectful and not right. really persistent or threatening, but I know that's not what you're recommending, that I think that could help just in an informal way. There were landlords who noted that once in a while when they reminded a tenant of like, hey, when you leave the trash can out too long, I, I could get a fine. Could you please be on top of that? Or, hey, could you please be sure to let me know of a running toilet? That they said the tenants did perk up and respond and that the landlords did acknowledge sometimes that it wasn't that the tenants didn't care or even worse, were trying to stick it to the landlord, but that, that people get busy and they you know forget sometimes. And uh, so, you know, on that note, I think it's important to find ways to help landlords and tenants communicate more productively and respectfully. And, <laughs> and I, do, <laughs> I do have some ideas on, on how to do that potentially, um, but I think that would be a step in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Right. So one question I had, you know, the, these landlords are saying, you know, because of these water and utility and waste regulations and nuisance uh, regulations, we are screening more strictly and, and look, it's actually harming the people it's intended uh, to help. But what makes you confident that the reasons they're giving for their actions are actually what's motivating them? Just for example, I think, if, you know, if someone has a either conscious or unconscious bias against black households, they may take a previous bad experience with a black tenant and then make a false association that leads them to be more critical of all future black applicants. Then if the city where that landlord owns property enacts stronger nuisance laws, the landlord may, you know, as you say, be even less likely to rent to a black household in particular. But that's really the fault of the landlord and their biases, not the city. Or, you know, at least it feels that way to me. And, and in that sense, it seems wrong to say, you know, we can't have stronger protections. We can't have uh, these regulations just because they will cause landlords biases to become more salient even if it is true that the burden will fall disproportionately on these marginalized communities. And I don't gather that this is what you're suggesting, that like we should just throw things out because of this, and that this is more about bringing these trade-offs to light and you know, maybe in the hopes that we can find better solutions. But how do we take this desire to act and, and balance it with the possibility or maybe even the certainty in some cases that it could backfire and do more harm than good? I think we can all agree we can't just throw up our hands and say, well, landlords are going to punish their tenants for this, so we can't do it. I think it's a great point. And it's actually something I was mindful of, especially as someone who studies race as part of my research agenda. And one thing to note is that even the landlords who housed somewhat more financially stable tenants who also were relatedly white also expressed significant concerns about water bills, leading me to believe it's not solely a race-driven pattern. Mm -hmm. But while I do think that there is an objective financial component to these landlords' concerns about water bills, I do think it is also amplified 
by tenants' marginalized status and the stereotypes that come with it about irresponsibility and deviance. And so I understand your point, but my point is that we cannot ignore racial biases any longer when devising policies. I think that it's not likely that racial stereotypes and biases are going to decline in the very near future. And with that in mind, I think we have to be vigilant about ensuring our policies do not disproportionately harm populations like people of color who already are at a great disadvantage as a result of these biases. So it's not letting landlords off the hook <laughs> about these biases, but it's acknowledging that we have a serious problem on our hands in regards to racial biases and systemic racism, and that we have to account for it in our policymaking. I don't see any other option moving forward if we're concerned about racial equity and justice. All right. It does feel, Mike, we've had a few episodes around this topic, and it just feels like several of the last episodes we keep coming to this, just having to grapple with like, sometimes policies have unintended consequences, and we can be very unhappy about that and and feel it's unjust, and it often is, and yet we still have to somehow deal with them. We can't just pretend they're not there or be mad that they're there. And and if we're mad about them, maybe they won't occur anymore. We actually have to uh, adjust our policy accordingly. Could you talk about the quote-unquote atrocity tales you were told by some landlords? This was a really memorable part of your paper for me. You had a bunch of landlords sharing how they were afraid of tenants doing things to deliberately increase the landlord's expenses. But then they would concede that they'd never actually experienced those things personally. We also heard about something kind of similar from Eva and Philip in this fear among landlords of the quote unquote professional tenant. These cases of deliberate abuse, you know, one was like they worry that the tenant will turn on all the faucets when they vacate their unit and just let it run. And, you know, in addition to costing a bunch of money in water, they also do a bunch of damage. So these things do happen, but it seems that landlords often build up this boogeyman in their heads with little or no firsthand experience of these behaviors. And then that fear becomes this real driving force behind their tenant selection process. It really was shocking and fascinating to see how this played out for landlords how you could hear them tell so vividly how tenants were prone to do this and wanted to stick it to the landlord. And this is something you have to really worry about in this business and especially at the lower end of the market. And then when you subsequently ask the landlord, has this ever happened to you? And then they say, no, that, ha that never happened to me. <laughs> so uh, like mm -hmm. you said, when it comes to running the water after an eviction or even things like washing other people's clothes in exchange for money and all that, that um, they had this, this outsized fear about what could happen. If I can read a quote really quickly from the paper that I, that I pulled out, uh, it just says, Quinn, with five properties in an economically distressed East Cleveland community, also intimated that tenants' retaliatory water use was a common practice. He expressed, quote, my big fear every time I go into a vacant apartment is that they just turned the faucets on and walked away, unquote. Yet Quinn later conceded that he had never personally experienced this scenario. That was just, <laughs> he's, he's like, he's fearful of it every single time. And yet it has not once happened exactly to him. that. And he'd been in the business right for 30 years. And I talk about this more in my book that how I joined him at a unit where he was going to enter it for the first time after a tenant vacated it. Uh, she had been evicted. And, and he was really rattled. He was uh, jumbling, mm -hmm. fussing around, seemed unusually edgy for someone who's usually pretty calm, but sometimes could be a little bit feisty. And he was so relieved to walk in the door and not see the water running. And there were other minor damages. That <laughs> Sounds like being a landlord is just too stressful a job for this guy. <laughs> yes. I don't know. There are, and it's true. I mean, on that related note, it seems as though... Many were well-intentioned. I will say that, that many, not all, but many had good intentions to run a legit business and play by the rules and all that, but that the business was very stressful and unnerving to them that for reasons I think we don't talk about enough that has to do with interpersonal 
interactions where some went into mm-hmm. it thinking, I'm going to be successful. You know, I know how to prepare, repair properties. I know how to manage a spreadsheet, that kind of thing. I know people have done this. It's going to be fine. And then it, many admitted they didn't realize how much of a people person you had to be mm. to do well or at least be spared of some stress of how especially – dealing with tenants who struggle a lot to pay rent and, and so on that, uh, how to be empathetic, how to be patient, how to communicate well, that, uh, for some of them, it did not come easily and it led them to become more stressed and riled up with the tenants taking the, the, you know, hit for that. So I, I think there's something to be said yeah. for helping landlords and tenants to communicate uh, more productively, like I'd said, and, and maybe, maybe to acknowledge that for some people, this is not the ideal business for them. (laughs) It did. This is another thing that reminds me of the conversation with Eva and Philip, where they, they talked about how we, we just expect a lot of landlords. We basically expect them to provide housing at affordable prices that often are actually not prices they, they can afford. They become like our, our first line of defense in some ways, uh, or, you know, the, they are the social workers for their own tenants in large part because we don't provide enough resources in the form of vouchers and rent assistance and other other kinds of needs. So I can certainly imagine how that would be a very stressful part of the job trying to, you know, not just get your own bottom line, but also that in many ways depends on being helpful to your tenants and also being kind of the bad guy in a lot of cases too. Yes, I think that in my observation, some of these landlords demonstrated something people call uh, you know, emotional fatigue or um, empathy burnout that you would talk about in regards to caseworkers, where after a long period of time in the business just got a little bit desensitized. They felt like they were hearing a lot of the same stories over and over again, not because tenants were lying, but it's just that's the nature of housing people who are just very low income, who you know are very financially mm-hmm. fragile and, and sometimes having to help out other family members and so on that over time, they became desensitized and even said it. Some of them seemed really disappointed with themselves and even seemed looking back, they, they hadn't really thought back about their career in a long time until a sociologist shows up to ask them about it and seemed almost in amazement that, wow, I didn't always used to be this way. I've like, they, they noticed that they've become desensitized over time. This compassion fatigue, compassion burnout is not someone that they actually identified with, but realized that, that it actually really was occurring. I, I, I would like to find ways for us to minimize that because I think that's an important part of why tenants mm-hmm. might suffer you know, in, in the larger picture. I wanted to tie some of this to back to kind of to methods and you know, methods of, of you know, qualitative methodology in particular, right? So Shane kind of started this this discussion about these atrocity tales, right? Which is such a good phrase. It's, you know, all these bad things that landlords want to get off their chests um, and these fears that they have that, you know, may or may not have been confirmed by real life sometimes. But like you talked in the, in the, in the methods about, you know, snowball sampling, using your respondents to identify other respondents that you can that you can talk about talk to so that the sample snowballs from there right and how much do you think that re- related to some of the that kind of getting off your chest right because if you're somebody's willing to talk you've got something to say and that's inevitable i think in any form of research um where you're relying on people to respond to to your questions or to your uh, or to participate, but how much do you think that played a role? It's a great question, something I considered myself. And while I will note that through the snowball sampling, initially people were more willing to go ahead and agree to be interviewed because they had a feeling of, oh, my friend or colleague passed on my, my information. They must have had a good experience with you that mm. kind of thing versus the people who were brought on through the random sampling where we called people who had rental listings advertised on Craigslist and other places that it gave us a foot in the door. But uh, once we were there, say from my experience, once we were there, that didn't fundamentally uh, 
produce any differences in terms of the findings across mm. the, the snowball and the random sample. Sometimes at first, true, they were even initially a little bit more open, uh, just casual and comfortable. But the key of doing good qualitative research is to know how to build rapport with your subjects, regardless of how you came to meet them that such that 10 minutes into the conversation, it stopped mattering anymore, whether it was a snowball sample person or a random sample that uh, they had these, all of these landlords had a lot to share, a lot to get off their chests. And, you know, that, that came out, uh, you know, these, these concerns I'm raising here were widespread across the sample. I wouldn't have had such a fire to write this article and write this book if it only came up among a few people or among a subset of people based on how they were sampled and so on. This, these findings were just so powerful, mm -hmm. unexpected, and so widespread that it made me feel as though there's a larger systemic problem here. Mm -hmm. and notably also just because these issues of the water, the nuisance ordinances, and other things that I talk about in my book, and we can talk about some more, just that it was surprising how common these were across landlords who were very different in a lot of ways. Their, their stories in many ways departed in terms of why they got into the business. Some wanted short-term cash versus some were just planning ahead for retirement. There was a lot of variation when it comes to age and gender and racial background and the neighborhoods where they operated. But regardless of all that, over time, it was so shocking and fascinating to see their stories converge in terms of more financial precarity and uncertainty, more mistrust towards tenants and scrutiny towards tenants, more mistrust towards authorities, that it told me that there was a much larger systemic problem, that people who are so different can enter this market and then start saying some very, very similar things and doing very similar things. Yeah, that convergence is really interesting. One distinction that I noticed between these nuisance and utility issues compared to other regulations, I, I think there is a distinction here, policies that we end up discussing a lot on the show and just, you know, in, in life here in California are things like rent stabilization, just cause eviction protections, kind of standard tenant protections. In a lot of cases, they're basically attenuating the property rights of the of the property owner, you know, limiting their ability to earn unrestricted profits or remove tenants without cause. These water and nuisance regulations, high utility bills, penalties when tenants overfill their garbage cans. Here, we're, we're really just punishing landlords for the behavior of their tenants and it's behavior that landlords have little or no control over. These seem just like very different things to me. And, and the latter case just sounds like bad policy for the most part, especially since penalizing the landlord may not even lead to better behavior, which is, I think, at least nominally the purpose of, of a penalty. But I'm curious if this can tell us anything about those other kinds of regulations, um, like that first set I mentioned, rent stabilization, just cause, where there may be unintended consequences that we're pretty well aware of with those kinds of things, but there are also pretty clear benefits and maybe less concerned about moral hazard. Is that what is what does your research into these nuisance and other kinds of regulations and their impacts tell us about other kinds of regulations that maybe don't fit that same mold? I'm glad you asked that question. I think that there's a lot to learn from these particular regulations to inform our understanding how other regulations work too, even when they don't involve a situation of moral hazard per se. And so these situations regarding water bills and nuisance ordinances, it's beyond just moral hazard. But the story there is that it pertains to landlords' financial precarity and that applies to other regulations and the rental industry more generally. So first, I just want to establish even more so in something that I cover in the book is just how precarious these landlords are. And it's not only because of the inconsistencies that they find with rent collection, but the costs of evictions, for instance, and that can include you know, filing costs mm -hmm. and lawyer costs when applicable bailiff costs, mover costs, these things fall on the landlords. This episode will be right after our interview with Ingrid Gould-Ellen, by the way, where we talked about right to counsel. So this is very, yeah. oh, very that's applicable great. to Oh, that. great. Okay. So, so yeah, dovetailing off of that, that the landlords who operate at the lower end of the market just 
disproportionately are going to be paying more eviction costs, you know, compared to people who have tenants that just are able to stay more current on their rent. And that there are other issues even besides rising water bills, like rising property taxes and property insurance and maintaining older properties, which is where more of these landlords tended to uh, do their business. So these landlords are on, on shaky ground, a number of them, and that showed through through their reaction to the water regulations and the nuisance ordinances. But there are other cases where these laws uh, are not just about you know, trying to penalize a landlord or tenant, but really are just trying to help the tenant. And we still see it backfire. I have a few examples of that that I talk about more in my book. So one pertains to uh, lead safety laws, which are really important. So cities are supposed to enforce these, but in reality don't necessarily do so thoroughly. And these lead laws essentially say that um, it's illegal to have lead paint in the walls. And we know that's pretty common in older properties that are built before 1978, which is when lead was banned from paint used for residential purposes. And so this lead paint, this is a crisis for, for young children that exposure to lead paint, ingesting it through uh, you know, crumbles of paint, flaked paint can lead to long-term developmental cognitive uh, delays and that it can really be disastrous. So I'd mentioned that cities don't do an excellent job of enforcing their, their lead laws, but public housing authorities that administer vouchers do. That's actually pretty high on their list for their quality inspections that they do for voucher holders. And so, uh, for instance, mm -hmm. for units that are going to be housing a voucher holder with a kid under six, it's required that these inspectors do this, uh, you know, lead test and, and, and make sure the property is lead free. And so in the case that lead is detected, that's a pretty costly process actually to remediate it. So because of this stipulation that uh, a unit that houses a kid under six will have to undergo this scrutiny and potential lead remediation, I had landlords saying, we do not house voucher holders with kids under six. Right. So it's a case mm -hmm. of a very well-intended law meant to protect tenants, but landlords facing, you know, the potential financial fallout as a result, it could be hundreds or thousands of dollars. In their mind, logically, you know, it wasn't necessarily a bias towards anyone on the basis of race or class that I could perceive, but just to say, we cannot afford that. So I'm just going to find someone who doesn't have kids under six, meaning that, again, another penalty for people with young kids as talked about in regards to the water bills of, of them, you know, not being able to benefit from this law and actually instead facing more obstacles to housing. Another one I want to bring up that was really surprising to me pertains to uh, Americans with disabilities and who collect government assistance for it, usually when they are low income as well. So these are important laws which state that disability income can't be garnished in court meaning that a landlord can't sue a tenant for unpaid rent or excessive wear and tear if that tenant primarily subsists on disability income. So again, this is an important law. But in mm -hmm. turn, some landlords shared with me that they felt it was too financially risky to house renters who would primarily pay using that government, government assistance for a disability, even when objectively the resources these tenants had could easily cover the rent amount. It didn't matter. The landlord said mm -hmm. that I'm stuck. If they did fall behind on rent or there was wear and tear, et cetera, I cannot recoup that money. And then they would had, had an incentive to turn them away. It seems like in a lot of cases, even if someone is not relying on disability insurance, like it can be hard to recoup rent from tenants. But at least I could I could imagine at least you have that that threat as a landlord to be able to say, I can take you to court and you may have your wages garnished and whether you ever follow through on it, whether, you know, anything comes of it, if someone is on disability insurance and they know that that's not something they have to worry about. Again, I, I doubt this is like a common thing going through the minds of tenants where they're like, I'm going to take advantage of this. But because of these atrocity tales, because of these, you know, a few bad experiences, you can understand why a landlord would then be wary of that kind of thing. Yeah, And one thing I want to add is that these and other examples do add up to violations of the Federal Fair Housing Act, which is meant to protect mm -hmm. 
people from discrimination on the basis of race and gender and family and children and disability. And so some of these landlords' practices were not just something immoral, but actually literally illegal. Just very hard to prove that they made their tenant decisions based on those. They could just say, well, I thought they were more respectful or I thought, you know, they... I liked their job more. Like you can make up any reason. It's very, very hard to prove exactly why someone chose one tenant over another. Right. And the, and we've talked a, a fair amount in and out about the voucher program, housing choice voucher program. And there's a lot of interesting and challenging ways that this interacts, I think, with a lot of these problems and policies. And, you know, one basic thing is that the voucher program uh, when you're calculating the subsidy, the portion of the of, of, of the money that the government is going to pay to the landlord, utilities are taken into account. So it's it's utilities plus the rent is not supposed to exceed thirty percent of the uh, household's income, the recipient's income. But like I keep thinking here, like how could you possibly build in these? you know, potential fines and, and everything into that. So like that seems outside the scope of that program in terms of, you know, whether somebody is going to get a big giant water fine and how, how would the government pay for that and et cetera. Or, yeah, and then what kind of moral hazard did that create? And then there's, you know, we, we're, we've talked a few times about protected characteristics and, and actual like just, you know, discrimination on the books. Some places have source of income laws that, kind of bring vouchers into a protected characteristic um, that way, but most jurisdictions do not. I don't actually know whether Cleveland or Ohio does. So, you know, that's just kind of some some connections that, that kind of interest me with the, the voucher program in particular. If I can just add on to that, you know, one thing I found interesting here was there's sort of two levels of the moral hazard. There's the one between the tenant and the landlord, but there's also this one between the the city and the landlord where the city is getting a bunch of money coming in um, if the tenants act poorly, but the landlords have to pay it. And so the city doesn't really seem to have much incentive to change things. You know, when landlords or tenants break the rules, it's the city that gets paid. They do need the money. And the money often comes from these landlords who may not even live in the city or vote in the city. Could you talk a little bit about that? And maybe this can just kind of lead into a, a little bit of a conversation about how do we get away from these kinds of things when, you know, it seems to be working for everyone but the landlords? Like, where do we go from here? Good question. It is true that cities and especially struggling cities such as Cleveland do have some financial incentive to try to you know, get some of that money <laughs> out of landlords or mm-hmm. homeowners pockets. I do think that the fines are excessive, objectively. For instance, that garbage can law where the even if the, the, the lid is about an inch sticking up too high or the can is left out overnight, it could be a $100 fine. But if the landlord is registered as an LLC, get this, $500. Hmm. <laughs> as, as though that changes the, like, the impact of, of violating <laughs> that rule. <laughs> and as though $100 is even a reasonable <laughs> yes, for that. Yes, there has been some push to... Lower the fine a little bit. I believe the city of Cleveland has looked to do that, uh, down to seventy-five dollars, for in in the case when it was a hundred. And so that's a, a step in perhaps the right direction. I've heard from city authorities though saying, "Well, what are we supposed to do? We we don't want trash in our streets, and and we need water bills to be paid, mm-hmm. and this and that. What what are we supposed to do?" and I think it does speak to a much larger problem that some of these issues really need assistance from the federal government, (laughs) from higher up, that cities have just so much money to play with. And especially in cities where they're, you know, where the tax base is, is low, they are struggling to fund all of their services and infrastructure. So sometimes they're pulling money in when maybe they could stand to pull a little money less out of people. And as a result, they're creating tensions and worse for the case of landlords and tenants. So I think this is where cities need to rethink some of these policies. And in some cases, when it comes to domestic violence, they have. There are select communities in the Cleveland metro area and nationwide that have 
crossed off calls for help with domestic violence as a nuisance. So therefore people will not be penalized in that mm. way if they do call. But nonetheless, that law remains on the books in, in most places at this point in time. So I think it, it is important to think about removing or reducing these when possible, but then also getting some more assistance from, from the federal government to help out um, to get by with these uh, dwindling budgets that are just stretched too thin to cover everything that a city needs. I do think studies like this help illustrate why regulation alone is often not enough to solve these problems, even if it is sometimes an essential part of the solution. A recurring theme of this podcast is that many times the solution is just you need to give people money or maybe cities money in this case, rather than trying to solve it, you know, the problem of water, crumbling infrastructure, through fines and fees, like maybe we just need federal investment again to to build up on this. The title of this article is Unintended Consequences. The title of your book is Collateral Damages. This is clearly about trade-offs. But let's just, you know, as we close out here, if you could tell us a little bit more about the book in particular, it's obviously got a lot more in there than the, the article. What is the message? What are the messages that you're trying to get across here? Uh, if you could just tell us a little bit more about the book, its contents, and, and what's it trying to say? So the book Collateral Damages overall shows how laws fall short and even have unintended negative consequences harming the very people and populations, notably marginalized renters and communities, that they're actually meant to protect and it establishes first that renters have become increasingly more vulnerable to disadvantageous landlord practices, first financially because of the disappearance of good jobs and greater obstacles to gaining access to government cash assistance, mm -hmm. also because of the expansion of mass incarceration and the carceral state that gives people more marks of stigma that make it hard to find housing and jobs. And another point that permeates the book is uh, the growing mistrust towards authorities on the basis of the expansion of the carceral states, such that uh, studies have shown over and over that people who have negative experiences with the police, even if they've not been arrested or incarcerated, end up having mistrust towards authorities and make them not want to interact with them, even authorities beyond the police, that there's a, quote, spillover effect of a system avoidance, as sociologists have called it, saying that for people with those negative experiences and mistrust towards a particular government institution, it could lead them to not want to interact with other authorities. And so for the sake of the current story here, it can look like someone who's afraid to report the landlord's unwillingness to fix a broken heater or uh, you know, unwillingness to report the landlord's harassment or informal eviction because because of this sense of mistrust towards authorities. And that's really difficult to, to ignore. I had this topic come up when I spoke to representatives at tenants' rights organizations and even people at the housing court of seeing that first, it, you have to acknowledge that renters are more and more, more vulnerable. And then layer on there, one of the other primary contributions of the book is just to show how some of these laws really do work counterproductively or, mm. or fall short simply by revving up landlords' financial precarity and mistrust towards tenants and mistrust towards authorities for some of the reasons we've been talking about by giving them fines that they think are unfair or unpredictable. And that in turn motivates or enables landlords to justify some of their practices like discrimination and screening or harassment or letting their properties fall apart or illegally evicting people. And so the primary point is that is to show <laughs> the primary point of the book is to show how disadvantaged can be perpetuated in, in hidden ways and that it's important to consider people's social and economic circumstances when devising laws. And in that case, when looking at landlords and tenants and to be clear, the book emphasizes that landlords are not inherently exploitative and it's not the case that authorities aren't interested necessarily in marginalized populations, but just that there has been a blind spot for these issues just because they haven't been studied mm -hmm. in depth and the housing market has not really been studied in a holistic kind of way. And thankfully, sociologists are doing the important work of changing that. And I think we're at a, 
a key moment right now when, when we're seeing more and more work doing that. But that's the primary gist of the book, to understand why these laws fall short and to show these hidden mechanisms that perpetuate disadvantage and segregation um, you know, for marginalized communities. I do think it's really useful in another way, which you did mention, which is just sort of acknowledging that, yes, landlords have privilege and power relative to tenants, but that doesn't mean that landlords can't be disadvantaged or taken advantage of in some ways, and that we can be concerned about the interests of landlords without needing to, you know, by default, dismiss those of, of tenants. We can, we can hold both of these things in our mind at the same time, and I think this conversation and some of our, our recent ones has, has really helped illustrate that. So, Meredith Greif, thank you again for joining us on the Housing Voice podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure to talk with you. You can read more about Professor Greif's research on our website, lewis.ucla.edu. Show notes and a transcript of the interview are there too. The UCLA Lewis Center is on Facebook and Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Shane D. Phillips, and Mike is there at MC underscore Lens. Thank you for listening. We will see you next time.